I actually lost the use of my left of the left side of my body. I couldn't move my left arm and I couldn't move my left leg. The doctors have actually told me in the hospital that they believe that the cause could be stress. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of the Depression Files podcast. For two and a half years, I've been creating and publishing this show every other Sunday. Of course, there is a cost to producing a podcast, from paying the podcast hosting site to the equipment to a significant amount of my own personal time. Because of this, I've decided to create a Patreon page and hope that you'll consider contributing so that I can continue the important work of allowing men to share their stories. Please check it out at patreon.com slash the depression files. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the depression files. Thank you for considering to support me in this way. And now to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. I'm your host, Al Levin. I'm excited with us today is John Middleton. John lives in the UK. He is a was previously a nurse and is currently a teacher of health and social care. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Al. Yeah, it's a pleasure to uh, be joining you. So, 12 years of nursing, correct? That's right, yeah. And is yeah. that a within a particular field of nursing? Uh, it is, yeah, predominantly. Um, I'm predominantly a, a cardiac nurse in cardiology so it was people with uh with poorly hearts uh mainly the nature of that did mean that it wasn't always people with poorly hearts they had other things um wrong with them as well so you still needed to be almost like uh, a bit of a jack of all trades as we say right was yeah. this was this in a hospital it was yeah it was in um, one of the the largest hospitals in Yorkshire to start off with. Um, so here in the UK, we've obviously got all the counties that the country is divided up into. Um, I'm from Sheffield, which is one of the biggest cities, and I, I worked in the the biggest hospital in that city. It was by area one of the biggest hospitals in uh, in in Western Europe, and it, and it was one of the specialist centres in the UK for for, for cardiac treatment, for heart treatment. Right. Wow. So I would Im- just imagine that that would be an incredibly stressful type of work. It was, yes. And uh, it, it varied. The nature of the of the job did mean that you could be having quite a, a steady day, almost quite a, you know, a, a job that was going at quite a good manageable pace but the nature of people's illness when they've got a heart problem is that they can be sat talking 
fine one moment and the next they can be struggling to breathe and become very ill so you needed to be able to uh, adapt to a, cha- a sudden change in pace it, it could be very stressful and then you know here in the states we're always always talking about a nursing shortage and how hard our nurses work and that alone i think is stressful on our healthcare system wondering in uk is it the is it pretty similar where there's a nursing shortage and you just have a ton of patients at one time that you're potentially monitoring it is yeah uh so there's a ratio that you're meant to to have to be working safe and that doesn't always happen so when i was nursing on the wards on a day shift one nurse would look after either seven or eight patients on on that ward but then if one member of staff went down ill then that number could quickly double from eight maybe to 16 maybe a few less maybe 14 um but then again the stress that brought was you know was tremendous potentially yeah well, uh, I, I couldn't imagine because again we're talking about people with cardiac issues heart issues it's not like they're there with broken legs and and already casted that's right yeah the the pace can change and the 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 nature of the patients are that they're on they're unstable and if someone's unstable they've got potential to you know to go it's almost like a a volcano you know it's uh, it can be sort of rumbling away and then totally unannounced it can blow and the heart as an organ very similar it can it can be stable and then all of a sudden it can change and sometimes you had one patient who was poorly and then another one had, had become ill and then another one and it's then it's become spinning plates so yeah it, it can be it keeps you on your toes that's for sure yeah oh i would imagine so i'm gonna throw out a couple numbers here and you can let me know if i'm accurate uh i believe you're 38 years old that's right yeah and yeah, years young yeah and and one piece of information i read about you made it sound like you were perhaps dealing with some mental health challenges as young as eight Is that yeah remember okay. as, as far back as that yeah so what types of issues can you remember at age eight that make you, and I'm guessing this is in hindsight, that would make you think you had mental health challenges at that age? What were you going through? Yeah, so as I recall, I can remember having extremely high levels of anxiety. I can remember having thoughts, which you mentioned the word hindsight. I understand them now as an adult. As a child, I didn't understand them, but they were there, and I felt very negative about myself. I felt very negative about how people viewed me. Um, I would have uh, the the sense that someone's looked at me in the wrong way, or they've talked about me in a negative way, and and that became and, and very early on, it became me, and um. You know, now looking back, it was it was there, and I think it's so important for people now to talk about the past and talk about the childhood because this exists in children, and I think even now it's not being explored in enough in enough detail in children now, and 
if it was, then maybe we could help so many more children and prevent them from having worse than in mental health issues when they get older. Right. When you say you were thinking negatively about yourself, was it anything in particular? I mean, were you frustrated with your looks, your weight, or did you feel like you weren't as smart as others? What, what types of things were you beating yourself down on? Yeah. So, you know, someone was always better than me at sport and I I never felt I was um, good enough to get in the school play or I was good enough to get in a school team. Um, And it was just general confidence. It was low. And, and, you know, I had I had few friends who were very good friends. Um, One of them is still my best friend to this day. Um, since I was six years old but yeah just general anxiety I can remember being high general confidence being low the contributing factors to that were were wide there was many um but the the symptoms of anxiety and depression were were definitely there from yeah eight nine years old for sure can you describe some of those feelings that that uh, how did your anxiety and depression manifest at that age? Well, I've always had a really morbid phobia of balloons. <laughs> and um, that's something that I think is linked into mental health disorders. And I've had this balloon phobia since I was younger. But um, social situations, if there was a group of children I was within that group, I was very sensitive to any comments or remarks. I was very easily upset. I took things very personally. And did you have any I, physical or physiological manifestations? Like, yeah, would, would your anxiety get bad enough that you could feel your heart racing, or things? it did? Yeah, yeah. Panic attacks were 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 common. Um, I can remember a few times feeling that I couldn't breathe, feeling, feeling like I was going to die, feeling like at night time didn't want to go to sleep because I felt like I wasn't going to wake up. I had a lot of stomach problems as in you know vomiting um because of the anxiety the vomiting was quite a common common thing and that's pretty significant yeah i had a really bad stammer as well really bad stutter you wouldn't think i was a teacher now because i no way i could have spoken in front of a group of people um and i imagine that would be another target to be teased about it was, yeah, yeah, everything, all of that, the stammer, the balloon phobia, um, you know, not really being that confident in sport, so I was, wasn't particularly good at it when I was younger, it wasn't until I started getting more encouragement from my peers as I got into my teens that I started to get better at sport, and, and it, it affected everything, and yeah. it affected my relationships um, with people, and, it, you know, it was, but it was there, and you know, it's. I just think now it, it's something that really needs to be looked into because there's other children there who are experiencing this. Oh, absolutely. So what, uh, I've never heard of a balloon phobia. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, gosh, I will get terrified. So this, just this, the sight of a balloon in front of me um, and the fear that that balloon's going to explode, it's going to pop. Um and I'll, my blood runs cold, my hands go clammy, I hyperventilate. Um, the typical response of you know a surge of adrenaline, and 
uh, I will usually try to avoid that situation, or I will I will try and fly from it, so I'll run off. Right. Um, and yeah, that's been there for as long as I can remember. Whether one exploded in my face when I was younger, I don't know. Yeah, right. That's what I was just going to ask, like where that fear may have come from, because that's the first thing that comes to my mind and probably many listeners like wondering if like somebody popped several balloons in your face when you were really little or something. But you have no idea where the phobia came from. Absolutely no idea. And strangely, I can remember feeling confident with balloons. I can remember kicking them up in the air in the living room when I was younger. So... It's something I've considered getting some help for now, and hypnotherapy is something that I've considered exploring for that. But now I've got, I've got no idea at all where the fear came from, but it, it controlled you know, the social situations that I would go into as a child. And, of course, birthday parties where balloons are all over the floor. Yeah, couldn't go there. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, it, it, it dictated things. And are balloons the only thing that you have a phobia of? It was bangs in general and any sort of sudden noise. So even something down to, uh, down, you know, the bubble wrap that you, you put around yeah. uh, in packaging. Yeah. If someone was popping bubble wrap in the fingers, I would avoid that. If someone got chewing gum in the mouth and blew a, a bubble of chewing gum and it popped... It's worse. That's even the, the the small noises were a were a factor, and I, I really think it was. It's if I do ever explore the hypnotism route, then I think there's. It's not so much the noise. It's a it's a trigger, and it'll be associated with something that's happened in maybe it's my childhood that I'm really fearful of, and I just can't bring that to the forefront of my mind at the moment. Right. Um, but that's what I believe. I believe it's a trigger and it's actually linked to something because why would you be scared of bubble wrap or a, or a, a bubble gum? Yeah. Right. <laughs> bubble right. Gum, you know? That is interesting. And I know you mentioned all out panic attacks and can you give us an example of a time you went through a panic attack and just, uh, how that felt, if you can describe that. Yeah, so I can remember for absolutely no reason at all, there was one, maybe two boys at school just started to gang up on me. Um, and I just remember feeling quite confused because I was the sort of child who would avoid trouble. I, I would never want to upset anybody, make fun of anyone. I was, you know, I would avoid that. Um I was always very in tune to people's feelings. So all I can recall is there were two boys and this really came up to me for no reason and started telling me I'd done something. And because I'd done something that they were going to really start, uh, you know, they were going to do things to me. They were going to punch me or something. And all I can remember is feeling this real strong sense of injustice. And this is wrong. I have not done anything wrong. Why am I you know, having this problem. And my it was like my body didn't know how to respond to it. And all I can remember is feeling this knot of um, emotion in, in my chest and my chest would go tight and I'd just immediately feel like I couldn't get my breath. And 
And then I'd, I'd go to the floor, I collapsed to the floor, and I just felt like I couldn't breathe. And and then it was a spell of hyperventilating afterwards, which I think maybe went on for as long as it did until someone calmed me down. On that occasion, it would have been a teacher in the playground. Um, but that was the only thing that seemed to calm me down was someone else talking to me and, and doing that. Right. And you had multiple panic attacks like that throughout elementary school? I did, yeah. And they were different in nature and, and at and different times, and it wasn't really clear as to any one particular episode what the root cause actually was. But it seemed, in hindsight now, it just seemed to be an, Ill, an inability to deal with something that presented as a threat or stress right at the time so whether that was something to do with resilience and maybe i wasn't a very resilient child you know i'm again i'm not sure um well and but, part of it you know, I, I don't know just like being you know a nice kid who was the kind of kid who stays out of trouble and all of a sudden you get bullied essentially for that and harassed and you probably can't even really make sense of it that's right yeah i think that's the thing in these sorts of situations and with these kinds of uh of conditions it's it's making it's not being able to make sense of things and that's what then tends to lead to the you know to the uh the really severe emotions but no to this day i'll i, I still don't know i still don't know what why that happened i'm a a lot different now. I, I manage things differently now as an adult. I think I've emotionally matured in a lot of ways. I still do have anxiety and depression, but you know, if uh, but if even in uh, as a teacher, if someone brings a balloon into my classroom, which has happened, oh no, <laughs> it still doesn't end very well. Oh my goodness! Hopefully, all your students like you and don't learn of that phobia. There was one. There was one student who was the class. You know, it was the class uh, clown, as we sometimes refer to. Yeah. And by that, I don't mean anything, anything bad against this person. But he just liked to be the center of attention and to be doing silly things all the time. Right. And and he was late back to class, and he'd been to McDonald's for his for his dinner, and he got a, a McDonald's Happy Meal balloon i can remember this shiny black balloon oh no entering the classroom and i've got a full class and i started the lesson and it was late and all i can remember is i can't even remember seeing him i can remember seeing this balloon float across the classroom in front of me and at which point i made a comment that it was inappropriate for him to have a balloon in the classroom at which point he proceeded to try and put it out of the window now the window's I don't know if the same in your school, Al, the safety windows that only open by a few inches. Ah, right. So no one can climb out. Um, <laughs> now, this balloon didn't fit through the window. No, no. And it proceeded to force the balloon out of the window, and at which point it exploded. Oh! And, and, and I managed to stay composed in that moment. Um, but asked him to leave the classroom and this guy couldn't work out why I was making a big issue about the balloon 
So I, I said to him, the problem is there are people with latex allergies in the college who may be allergic to that balloon, so you cannot bring it into the classroom. There you go. And I didn't, I didn't have the um, confidence to say, I've got a balloon phobia. Please don't bring it in um, at the risk of lo- at the risk of looking embarrassed. But yeah, well, not only looking embarrassed, knowing how many class clowns act, perhaps he would have showed up the next day with five balloons had he known you had a phobia around them. Absolutely, that was exactly <laughs> my thought. I think as soon as you expose some form of weakness in this in this profession, then unfortunately, one of the occupational hazards of the job is that our our clients can sometimes take advantage of that. That so, is yeah. funny. That's funny. Well, that was quick thinking on your part. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was quite proud of myself at the time, thinking, "How do I get out of this without looking foolish?" Right. Um, I don't really want to say to my class. Your teacher's got a balloon phobia. I've got a feeling that might that might lead to them losing some form of respect for me. So yeah, that is funny. So tell us, um, like middle school, high school, the rest of your schooling was it kind of the same way? You were dealing with depression and some anxiety and panic attacks. Did you ever get help or see any counselors or talk to family about it? Yeah, my parents uh, were aware of it, and they noticed it at home. I had panic attacks at home. I had panic attacks in the middle of the night, um, and my my mum got me referred to a, a psychiatrist when I was a child, and I've only got a very, very fuzzy memory of this visit to the psychiatrist. We, we actually talked about balloons for the most of the time, okay. um, and... Um, but I have asked my parents recently what that was about, and they did say it was because of my, my anxiety. Um, so, for, for example, we went on holiday to, to Greece, and I'd heard or read somewhere that in the main countries in Europe, the, the Central European countries, that they have, uh, they have rabies. They, in the UK, we don't have any cases or incidents of rabies it's you know as a, as a disease it's been extinct for you know for for a long time do you still have rabies in the in the you in the states uh you know i think it is very 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 rare but i do believe we still have it at times from some wild animals yeah you see i um I, i'd read that with rabies existed in greece and um in the apartment in Greece, which we had, we we got visited by stray cats. And this one particular stray cat, I mean, I loved cats. We got a cat at home. So I, I made a point of you know feeding them and giving them milk and water. And um, there were some really cute kittens that kept on climbing on the balcony that had stroke. And But then one of the cats scratched, scratched my finger. So I convinced myself for the rest of the holiday that I was contracting rabies and that we're going to die. Um, and I can remember being sat in restaurants with my family in Athens before we caught the plane home that I was going to die. I was telling my friends when I got home I'd, I was contracting rabies and I was going to die. And it, but it was real. You know, my, my parents, of course, were trying to reassure me, saying that, John, that doesn't happen. It's very, very rare. You know, it. Because, I, because I'd read somewhere, that was it. It was happening. It was happening to me and it was happening. And so resilience was a problem. And uh, I can recall a couple of similar incidents to that which led to the same kind of 
emotions. But um, but I think that's why now we just need to be so mindful about about children and and and, and, and young adults and and teenagers because I think that's where you know people are at the emotionally the most vulnerable. Well, you know, it's interesting too that you talk about believing like so strongly that you had rabies and. I don't know if this is a really common thing for depression and or anxiety, but I know when I was in my major depression, I had convinced myself I was, I had MS, muscular sclerosis. Sclerosis. Yeah. Yeah. And I had just convinced myself of it. And I was having some type of situation where like I would wake up in the middle of the night and my fingers were kind of tingly and numb, yet. I wasn't laying on them funny. They were actually laying on my stomach while I was on my back. And, you know, I had convinced myself that I had MS. And, you know, one of them, I actually talked to a doctor about it. And, and one doctor just said, you know, you're most likely just hyperventilating from your depression and anxiety in, at the nighttime. And it's doing that to you. And that helped calm me quite a bit. And uh, But I don't know if that's a, a common deal. I've heard of a couple other people who have, you know, really been determined that they have some type of really terrible chronic illness uh, when they're going through their depression and anxiety. It's really pretty interesting to me. Well, it's funny you should say that, Al, because only three weeks ago I was admitted to the local hospital with um, weakness in the left side of my body, and I thought I had a stroke. Right. Um, And it was the same. It was uh, I was sat in the living room at my partner's house, and I actually lost the use of my left of the left side of my body. I couldn't move my left arm and I couldn't move my left leg. Oh my goodness, scary as all get out, I would think. And and of course you thought stroke. I did. And the thing was, as you've described, I was having the same occurrences at night time where I wasn't laid on my on my limb and it would be numb. It it'd be tingly and and I would struggle to turn over in bed and get comfortable. You know, I'd really have to make a big effort. And it was almost like one side of my body was was almost become paralyzed. And the CT scan is normal. The MRI scan is normal. So I've not had a stroke. So the doctors have actually told me in the hospital that they believe that the cause could be stress. And they have mentioned MS to rule that out. But they've said that, you know, there was no evidence on the CT scan and sorry, the MRI scan. And sometimes with MS, there can be something on the MRI. So, yeah, that, that is that's really interesting. And just so the listeners know, we were not talking about this ahead of time. That is that's Absolutely, really yeah. interesting. And uh, I'm, I am guessing that while you were experiencing these symptoms, you I mean, I would imagine that you would really in your head really convince yourself that you had it which would only make you kind of focus on it and make it exacerbate if anything yeah it's a spiral yeah Yeah, i was in i was in the accident in emergency department which is the you know the the er department and um in the uk we have specialist nurses who assess anyone who may have had a stroke so the the amt uh the MTs they took they took me in the blue lights to you know to hospital and and I saw the the stroke specialist nurse and she assessed me and said to reassure you I don't think you've had a stroke and I think this is this is linked to your 
to your mental health. And actually, we they see it often and they're starting to see it more and more. Wow. So actually, you know, the again, we I think at the moment, despite being in the 21st century, relatively advanced in the fields of medicine compared to how we ever have been before, we still actually don't know what the majority of our brain does. Right. So, you know, how do we know in terms of being anxiety and depression sufferers that there isn't a part of our brain that when we get anxious and when we get depressed, we'll shut down another part of it as a bit of a safety measure. Who knows? <laughs> I right. know. Right. But, um, were your symptoms uh, like creeping up on you and you were living with those symptoms for quite some time or, or did you just have like one night of this? Let us know the kind of the context of how that came about. It was creeping up over a period of time. So I'd say up to four to six weeks, between four and six weeks beforehand, I've been having the intermittent loss of a feeling in, in mainly my left hand and my left arm. And the day it happened, it was the first time it had affected my left arm and my left leg. So I had been very stressed leading up to it. So... Mm-hmm. Um, without going into detail at the moment, um, but just to put my, my current life situation in context, is um, I'm, I'm not working at the moment, and that's because of a very stress, an event in relation to my occupation that's extremely stressful is going off in the background. Gotcha. Um, and um, that morning it happened, I'd actually been for a meeting in relation to this, this situation okay and and it was that afternoon when i i had this attack so and i i can remember feeling particularly stressed and the physical symptoms of stress that actual that actual day were as bad as they were when i was admitted to hospital 18 months before with a, an acute psychiatric episode. Um, you know, the, the symptoms that day were as bad as then. Um, yeah, only, only without the suicidal ideations, but so, um, so when you went to the doctor and they told uh, a couple things I'd like to say, one is I think it's great that they took you seriously and went through the testing, right? Rather than, I don't know, like a just a physical check quickly and saying, no, you're fine. This is all in your head or something like that. And that they actually did the testing and that they were able to, you know, share with you. Like we think it's it's stress related and mental health related. I think that's some good doctoring going on, if that's a real word, doctoring. And yeah, uh, yeah. and then I'm also curious about how you were feeling when they shared that with you. I'm curious because on one hand, I could see people getting angry going, no, these symptoms are real. This is really happening. Or on the other hand, I could also see somebody saying, well, it's true. I have been through a lot of stress. I do have a bit of a history and almost a relief. So how were you feeling after hearing that news? I think for me it was the having a bit of knowledge about strokes um, and that my speech hadn't gone. So part of me felt that it wasn't a stroke because I've retained my speech fully and it was just 
paralysis in the in the arms and the legs. I totally agree with what you said about the the medical team. Um, you know, their non-judgmental approach um, was was fantastic, and they were very thorough. Um, they didn't take anything for granted, and they still ruled out any physical cause. Um, for me, my uh, my state of mind at the time, um, I guess being a medical practitioner as well, it was hard to fully distance myself from any thoughts that I'd had something significant or that there wasn't something else causing this under underneath the surface. You know, there was some medical anxiety started, some health anxiety started to creep in. I started thinking brain tumor, I started thinking MS. Um, it's so easy, I think, for our brains to go in that direction, particularly when we're in a depressed state, for whatever reason that is. Absolutely. And at the time, emotionally, I was very vulnerable. Um, I'd had a very stressful day. Um, I'm, it was in the middle of a very stressful period, probably the most stressful period of my life so far. Right. Um, so for it to occur at that time, I mean, I've, I've, I've got a follow-up point with a specialist in June that will finalise everything, and um, that right. will be when they completely decide you know the ultimate outcome what what was the cause but if it turns out to be a mental health reaction then i really wouldn't be surprised due to the the pressure that i've been under recently yeah well it's good that you can keep it in perspective like that too and that is you know i've mentioned it on this show before it is definitely not is but it can be a symptom of depression can be uh, pains and illnesses that have no physical connection that are unexplainable. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's the that's the proof of it. Part of this as well, it's so good that more people are being open now because right. I think that's how we're going to find out more about um, depression and anxiety and how it manifests itself in people absolutely. and how it causes certain things. I think we're only just starting to scratch the surface, but um, but for me, it'd be almost a good thing if it turns out to be depression and anxiety, was, which was the cause, and it's nothing else, because of course, I want to be physically healthy. Yeah. Uh, because I'm I'm not very mentally healthy, so at least I'm physically healthy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, become... <laughs> I think that that kind of uh, diagnosis would be also helpful because. You know you've dealt with challenges with your mental health and you've pulled through them just fine. So to know it's not a tumor, it's not MS, it's not a stroke and to know all right, this is, this is some this is a challenge I've had, my mental health and I'm going to attack it, work at it and get better. I want to bring you back to y your younger days cuz I'm wondering when you finally, if you did, get to a doctor and have a diagnosis. I know you mentioned a psychiatrist once. You didn't mention if you were put on any medications or not. Um, but when did you get that first diagnosis? The first time I had an official diagnosis wasn't until I was about 19, 20. So the first time I saw a psychiatrist in the, the occasion that I mentioned earlier I would have been about 11 or 12 years old, but there was no 
um, diagnosed at that point. Nothing actually came of that. Okay. And uh, I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because the practitioners at the time just didn't see enough evidence that there was anything wrong because I was, you know, initially a very happy child, a very carefree child. I, you know, I was very chatty and talkative and I was always smiling. So if I was like that in the appointment, then they probably thought there's nothing wrong with this child. He's just got a balloon phobia. Right. And, right. <laughs> but then the, the first diagnosis came when I was 19 or 20, 20 years old. And I uh, could remember having a particular stressful time. And there was three deaths of people I was close to that all occurred within two weeks. Oh, that's a lot. And and as a, and as a result, I started to feel very sad in regards to that. But also, I was at university studying nursing at the time, which was stressful. Oh, I'm uh, sure. I didn't have much money because I was a student, and um, I had a lot of assignment work on at university, so the essays. And um, I was working on the wards for the first time and the departments in the hospital. So I was witnessing things there that I'd never witnessed before. Um, wow. And at age 19, that that's a lot. It is. Yeah. It's a lot to take in at, at once. A term, um, a term I've heard that I really, uh, can re it really resonates with me is stress pile up or stress build up. you know, like it's just one stressor, one serious stressor on top of the other, and then eventually it's almost like a breaking point if we aren't taking care of our mental health. That's right. And it's almost the saying the straw that broke the camel's back. Right. So you, know, you can pile on lots and lots of weight of, of, uh, of luggage, say, onto a camel. But as soon as you put the, the drinking straw on, that just really tips the balance. And, and um, I'm a, I am a very resilient person, but... I think sometimes, you know, you can take on so much, but then it just needs a very small thing to sort of tip you over. But yeah, stress pile up, one thing compounding after the other. Yeah, so uh, all this happened to you, and tell us uh, how it impacted you. So I can recall going to the the placement um, on the ward in the, in the middle of all this. Um, and bearing in mind that, you know, the, the week before, Matt, one of the deaths was a friend at university and he, in, he committed suicide. He took oh, his own life. No, that um, just adds to the, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was hard. Um, because you know, the university, we didn't stop things. You know, we, we carried on, you know, the, the classes didn't stop, you know, it, it carried on. And, and I can recall going to work and it was a, a shift uh, on an acute cardiac unit in the field where I, I ended up working. But all I can remember is that I couldn't, I wasn't speaking to people in the same tone and the same manner as what I was the previous week. I found it very difficult to follow any form of humour that anyone was presented me with. I felt very empty. I felt very numb. I didn't have as much patience. The previous week, all these things that I'd had and and it was the first time which I really felt like I couldn't snap out of it. Right. And 
that night, Al, my granddad suddenly died. Oh, um, my goodness. It was that actual night. And I, I got back from work, and there was a phone call um, from my mum's my mum, my, my grandmother, saying that she couldn't get the, my granddad to talk. And um, I jumped in my car, and I went straight down to their house, and he was he was dead. Um, you know, he, I, I had to give him CPR. Oh my uh, goodness! Stressful. And, and he and he and he died. And, and of course, that that night, all the all the other things attached to that happened. So the family were upset. You know, my grandmother was upset. She had to then come and stay with us at the house, and she was very old and frail herself. She was in her eighties. So I just tried to keep everyone going, tried to help my mum look after her mum, my nan, and. And then within a few days, I was looking out of the front window and um, just to the left of our front window, our house, there's, there's the next door neighbor's house that joins onto our house. And I saw a, a stretcher on the front lawn covered up in a black cloth. And the next door neighbor, had, who, we, who we knew was ill, he had a brain tumor, had died. So... I can just remember going to bed that night after the third death in less than two weeks and I was uncontrollably crying without anything going through my head. Well, I just, I have to say, I mean, these are tragic, tragic situations too. It's, I mean, deaths are hard enough to deal with, right? But when one is a death by suicide, Another is one that you are trying to give CPR to, which may give you feelings of guilt, unfounded, things you shouldn't have, but like you're hands-on with this person trying to revive them. Yeah, that, oh, it's quite understandable why you uh, went into a depression. Yeah, and it was it was the symptoms of the depression that I can remember so vividly. Such, and that was the first as... time. I, well, I can remember feeling absolutely nothing. Right. I was laid in bed, and I felt so empty. Um, I felt like I couldn't think. I, I um, was trying to think about other things. So, so what am I? What am I going to do tomorrow? You know, almost trying to keep going, and I couldn't think of anything. And that was the first night for a long time that I cried myself to sleep. And then the following morning, I can remember feeling absolutely empty and numb. Um, and I had to go. I had to go to work on the placement, and and I walked through the door knowing that I couldn't bring myself to even say good morning to somebody. And I shortly found myself in the, the the sister's office. So the sister's like one of the the managers on the on the ward, and I told her what had just happened, and she couldn't believe I'd even gone in. You know, she, right. and um, and she was fantastic, and she just said, "You need to go home." But I was worried about then getting the hours in for my course because if we missed any time on the ward then it could go against us for our university study. But she reassured me that they will find the time to make up to me further down. Awesome. Um, which was fantastic. So straight away, that little act of human kindness just started to lift me. Well, um, and I'm glad you point that out because 
so many times and so often people wonder how to support with somebody who's dealing with a, a challenge with their mental health. And sometimes it is just simple acts of kindness and caring and compassion that that really can help somebody a great deal. It can make such a huge difference, such small things. Right. And, you know, that 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 small act of just and she she timed it perfectly because at the time, you know, all this has just happened, you know, all these these deaths and I've got funerals happening, you know, right, left and center. They were the one worry at, my, at the time in that morning I could think of because I knew I wasn't fit to be there. I knew I wasn't fit to work. Right. Um, but that meant I would then miss some time on that placement. And if I miss time on that placement, then that means I'm not going to pass my course. That means I can't be a nurse. That means I could, so all this spiraling thoughts were going off. Oh, yeah. And it's almost like she could read me and she said, don't worry about that. We'll find the time. That's awesome. Go home, go home put your feet up do something you enjoy and rest. And I did. And, and then I got in touch with my university tutor and I spoke to her openly about what had happened and the assignment work, because again, the assignments, it was drilled into us at the beginning of the course. Your assignments must be done by this time. No excuses. And I'd say, I take things very literally. So, but then I realized that if I shared a problem, I think for the first time in my life, I was going through the toughest time in my life ever. But I also learned that by sharing problems, that you can you, you, you can resolve them. Right. So regardless of that being a very difficult time of my life, I think I actually learned a lot then as well. That's, um, that's a really but, good point. I mean, imagine how it could have turned out if you just like kept that all in and told yourself, I have to go, you know, I'm going to, I might have to miss one of the funerals, but I have to be at class. I have to be at work. Not only, I mean, you could have made mistakes like dangerous mistakes at work. You could have, I mean, it just could have exacerbated the situation so much had you kept it buried like a lot of men do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think sometimes I've still been guilty of doing that as I've got older, but at least it did. It was the start of me realizing that, Life's not all about having to be there all the time, and it's not all about having to do everything all the time. It's sometimes about stopping and putting your hand up and saying, "Look, I, I need, I need some help with this." Yeah. Um, yeah. I I actually uh, I have a new boss this year, a new principal. And, uh, and my dad was in hospice and I was showing up at work and my boss found out and was like, you need to go home. You need to be with your family. And I was so thankful she did that. And I was at, you know, my dad's place when he passed away with the rest of our family. And I think it sounds like you're like a bit like me or I'm a bit like you. And I was like, I can't just miss work. I, you know, and it was so silly to think that really like, this is my dad. And she helped me put that into perspective and showed enough care to say, go home. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely right. You know, it's, um, I think sometimes we have a tendency to prioritize everything and everyone else actually over something that might be more important at the time. And, you know, I, I, I was definitely at risk of doing that 
at the time. You know, I think if I'd not have spoken to the right people at the right time, I was definitely at risk of maybe becoming um, a victim of the circumstance that were happening at the time. I could have been more ill myself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or like you say, I could have made a mistake at work and but instead I was given time. I was given time off obviously for the funerals. I was given by the university tutor, I was given extensions on the assignment work till after Christmas. Awesome. Um, all this happened just before Christmas as well. Right. Um, so um, it just meant I had time just to take it in and and reflect on things yeah. and and but I, I came out the other side and um what did you yeah. do that helped you come out through the other side did you did you see a psychiatrist start medications um see a talk therapist yeah so the um the actual incident that occurred just before christmas uh the short term um I started to feel some improvement, um, but only to a stage where I was existing. I wasn't living. Right. And that continued for about six months. So fast forward now to June the the following year, and I wasn't right, and I was still very low. And it's at that point when I went back to the GP, because I saw the GP at the time all this happened and the gp said you know you don't uh, you don't need any um so the gp's the the family doctor do, yeah. is it, do you call it gp in the us yeah some people call it gp i think or family doctor or, but general Without, practice yeah um so at the time he, he said it's uh you, you're going through a tough time you just need time and then you'll be fine so i took time and it got to the following summer so six months later and i noticed that i wasn't fine so i went back and i said i was here in december and this is what happened and he said i'd be fine and i'm i'm not fine at all you know i'm i'm still very low and it's at that point i was given medication for the first time um so i accepted the medication i took it and and then i did feel a vast improvement on those mm-hmm. And I remained on those for about six months and then came off. Um, and that was around about the time I was finishing the university course as a whole. And I graduated. So there was a natural high and all of a sudden life was fantastic. And then about a year later, it came back. Wow. So before we get into that, I want to ask you, in hindsight, were you frustrated that a doctor would say, ah, you're going to be fine. And, and it doesn't sound like he gave you anything to work with other than you just need time, which I, I would disagree when dealing with depression that like, if you only are sitting and waiting and you're only hoping that time fixes it, you're, you're at risk for that depression to, to spiral downward and ruminate more and, and get worse and worse. So I'm wondering what your thoughts were about that doctor not giving you some suggestions better than just time. In hindsight, now I, I think it was—I think on the doctor's part, it was a mistake because I wasn't fine at all, and, and actually, with the amount of stress that I'd, I'd experienced in such a short time, I was unstable, yeah. and you know, and there, there wasn't any follow-up. There wasn't any 
you know, you must come back and see me in a week. Um, It was literally, you know, I told him that I'd been given some support from university and the placement and, um, and there were very loose questions like, do you have family support? And of course the answer was yes. Um, do you have friends? Well, yeah. Right. Well, you, you'll be okay then. And and that was kind of it. But the reality, you know, it, is that that's not the case because I didn't want to speak to my friends about I was having these really low thoughts. My, my family were all, were equally going through a tough time themselves. So I didn't want to share it with them. Yeah. And, it does not seem like, I hate to critique the guy. I haven't even met him, but that does just with everything you had experienced. And I think you describe it great. Even if somebody says, do you have friends and support? Well, yeah, but many people with depression aren't able to reach out to their friends and share that. That alone is a huge, difficult step. Yeah, I didn't want to, you know, it wasn't the right thing for me to do at the time. If anything, the culture, I was a, you know, I was a 19 year old, uh, 20 year old man. And, you know, back then, as a friendship group, it was all about appearing strong and, you know, well, we're, we're, we're talking the UK. So it's all about going out and slamming a ton of beers, right? That's right. Yeah. (laughs) I was just about to say exactly the same thing. It was about, you know, being there as a, as a present member of the group and going out and, you know, you're going to be the man who's going to meet the girl that night. You know, you're going to, you know, um, you're going to score with the ladies. You're going yeah. to down the beers, and you're going to get up at ten o'clock the next morning, and you're going to score a hat trick in the football game. <laughs> right, you know, right. That's that, that's what it that's what it was. Yeah. And uh, and after you've done that, you're going to go back to the pub that night, and you're going to do the same again. <laughs> right, um, right. And so you know, the last thing culture uh, culturally that you do is sit down with your friends and say. I've had a really bad week. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it yeah. wasn't the done thing. I mean, I mean, Al, this is now, this is 19 years ago. This happened. Yeah. Really it was 19 years ago in December. And I think, I think thanks to shows such as yours and, and everything else that's happening now, you know, we are, we are evolving. Yeah. Um, in, in this field. Yeah. Uh, and that's good. Yeah, but, absolutely. Um, so, so in, in the end, though, you went back about six months later. You said you got medications. And did you do anything else that helped you with the recovery? Or do you feel like at that point it really was the medication solely that helped get you back on your feet? Yeah, I mean, that was the only thing I was offered, medication. And uh-huh. and, it, uh, and it, it, it must have worked because I, I recovered. And I can remember feeling much better. And... Yeah. You know, I um, I got through the the last year of university and graduated, and and that was still challenging. You know, but I was I was renowned for my nursing skills. You know, I always had ex- very good reports from my placements, and I'd met a girl at the time, got a good relationship there. I was the main organizer with my friends in all the events that we did and any holidays we went on. So I was thriving. Right. Right. Um, and but then absolutely out of nowhere maybe about a year after that so i'll I'll be about 22 23 now it came back and 
How did you notice it? Like, what were the first indicators that it was coming back? It it, 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 like it happened literally in one day. And it was so strange because this time there was no identifiable trigger. Right. There was no deaths. There was no university stress. Yeah, you were just saying how you were riding high on life. Everything was going your way. Yeah, it was out of absolutely nowhere. And still to this day, this episode, I cannot identify what went wrong. Right. I still don't know. Tell um, us about those fir- the first things you noticed that day. I felt numb. I couldn't think. Um, I had no interest in anything all of a sudden. Um, I didn't want to engage socially. Um, I was very downbeat on a lot of things and very, um, very negative. Um, I was arguing with people. Um, and, and looking back, even you don't see any kind of buildup, but that literally happened. Like one day you woke up and, and these were, this was your experience. Absolutely. I can't remember anything identifiable, which, which caused that episode. Right. Or gradually like sleeping less or getting more agitated, not even a gradual buildup. It was sudden. It sounds like. No, nothing. Absolutely wow. nothing. It was the most bizarre episode I've ever had in my life. Yeah. Um, and um, and I went, I went back to see the GP, and um, in 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 hindsight, I think I'd actually gotten to a stage in my life where I was convincing myself things were okay. So that's the only thing I can identify. You know, I was having some work stress at the time. I wasn't enjoying working for the the manager of the department I was on at the time. It was my first job as a qualified nurse. And the ward manager, the ward sister, wasn't very nice. And there were some of her behaviours that I found quite weird um, in terms of how you treat people. Right. Um, so that was the only thing I can identify with. But there was a lot... Of, at work that I, I was loving and enjoying and thriving. It was my first qualified nurse job. It, it was in the department where they put pacemakers in okay. to patients and they do the the angioplasties. So they put another tubes in through the wrist and the arms right. uh, and, and, and the groins and unblock arteries, the coronary arteries in the heart when they get blocked. Um, so there was a fantastic set of, um, of lads on there and, who I got on with very well. So that was the only thing I could identify with. And, but I, you know, I I ended up back on treatment again, another six months improved. And then that was it. And it would almost seem to become a cycle at this point. And, and I think that's kind of, that's that cycle is still ongoing to this day. And it's almost like it might come round sooner or later but eventually it comes back round. So it's a bit like getting followed followed around by uh, by the black dog, you know, and sooner or later I'll uh, I'll lose the black dog. I'll I'll run down one street, I'll run down another and I'll turn a corner and I'll lose it. But sooner or later the black dog catches up with me. 
Is there anything else you're doing to try to keep the black dog at bay? Are, are you doing any talk therapy? Are you trying to exercise more? Anything? Uh, yeah. So one of the big things that I've engaged with that's been tremendously helpful is the talking therapies. Okay. Um, so I've had lots of different types of talking therapy now. They've ranged from seven weeks to 20 weeks. And this has been hugely influential for me in terms of recognizing the condition, almost like becoming familiar with how your own brain functions and how your own brain works and what does trigger your feelings. And it's been hugely influential in, in myself actually now being able to accept my condition more right as well as as manage it because there's one thing that's becoming certain for me i mean i'm i'm 38 i'm 39 in june is that this is probably never going to go away but it's about recognizing the signs and and then how you um manage those yeah i think you're right and i think the advantage you have is that you've been through this several times and hopefully you'll see a trigger and you'll be able to go to your toolbox and the, the things you've learned through therapy and such and and take it head on quickly before it spirals down too far. Absolutely. And that's the way I think of the talking therapy. Um, the, way I, the way I imagine the talking therapy is every single session you attend. And in total now, well, I've probably attended probably in the region of about... 50 or 60 count separate counseling sessions awesome with, with different people but every single time i go to one of those sessions the way i think of it is that they describe a tool to me just as if you were pulling a a, a different spanner or screwdriver out of a toolbox and you're explaining it to the person right. every single time i go they explain this tool now some of those tools are going to be no use to me whatsoever in most situations and I'm never going to need to even look at them again. So we've, we've all got those toolboxes, right, where we've got some things in the toolbox that we never use. Yeah. But then we've got the favourite tool in there that we use for everything. We've got the favourite screwdriver. We've got the favourite spanner. And for me, that's what the counselling sessions have done. They've equipped me with tools and in certain situations, I pull those tools out of the bag and it depends on what the situation is. But for example, I've always been very influenced by other people and I'm very impressionable and I'm and I'm easily led. And I've and I've always been taken advantage of by negative toxic people, as an example. Right. So if I'm now presented with a situation where there's a negative toxic person and they are trying to influence me or get in my head or maybe they may be trying to control me in a certain way. Because one of the things I've learned is that the nicer people and the the gentle people are, are like flashing beacons to to yeah. the top people. Right. Uh, and I, my favourite tool in in that case comes in the form of my of my hand that kind of gets held up to the face, uh, to, right. to their face. And it's now you know I don't have to listen to this. I don't need to listen to. To, to this toxic person who was not very nice and I'm allowed to move on and, and not, and not let this person bother me. Right. 
it's just an example of you know of of one of the things that I've I've learned along the way. Yeah, that's awesome. You had mentioned, I think, uh, a psychotic episode that brought you to the hospital. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that was eighteen months ago, um, and it was September. So September two thousand and eighteen, and I was going through a particular stressful time. And where do I start? Um, so in the the months preceding the incident, um, I was going through divorce. Um, I'd moved towns. I'd moved from Sheffield to a town called Doncaster, which is about 20 miles up the, up the road. And I moved in with my partner at the time who was pregnant. And she subsequently gave birth to our fantastic son, Isaac, who's uh, who's almost two years old now. He'll be two years old in May. All right. Congratulations. Um, thank you. And um, I'd also started a new job. I'd earned a promotion. But in moving into my partner's house, I had to move out of a flat. And to move out of the flat, I had to clear it. I had to be out by a certain date, so I had to sell everything. I'd moved in with my partner and she'd got her own things going off. You know, she's had a lot of difficult occurrences going off in her life that I was, I've I'm been her main support with that and still am. We got financial troubles. So living together, I was on a new salary, an increased salary, but it was, things were still very tight. And the baby was born then and there was the long days and the long nights. I would try and support my partner by doing as many of the night shifts as possible, which in the end meant I did most of them. And that was in addition to working full time and it got to September and I ran out of, I ran out of, uh, of fuel. Right. And I tried to go on and on and on and carry on and be the strong person and do everything the best I could all the time, day, night. And I'd done so for about three or four months. And in three or four months, I was probably averaging um, two to three hours sleep a day. Um, I was getting to getting to grips with a new job you know um there was the the new job itself in teaching at the time out the, the department i took over um in there was a lot of operational difficulties there and, and you'll appreciate um the um the quality processes that have got to be met and right. have got to really um you know to the point and and the targets with the amount of students that need to pass. And when I when I took the job, the department was falling so far short of all these targets. So but anyway, it got to August and, and I'd achieved a lot. You know, the, the baby was doing well, the, the college was doing well, and my partner was doing better. And I was forgetting one thing, one person in all this. I'd, for, I'd forgotten and neglected myself and I went to work it was a Tuesday and I had the same emotions and thoughts that I had before this time it was worse 
I couldn't think. I couldn't speak. I couldn't remember how I got to work that morning. I, I, I got to the car park at work and I just was sat in my car, just looking out of the window and not thinking of anything. Um, was this another one that just kind of came out of nowhere? Absolutely out of nowhere. Right. Absolutely out of nowhere. I mean, some, uh, some definite reasons though, right? I mean, you're still in a job that's fairly new. You've got a baby at home at this point, right? You And like you said, you were running, uh, running on empty. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing on this occasion. I, although it came out of nowhere, I was able to identify a cause. Yeah. Um, and the lack of sleep you mentioned that was happening. Yeah, yeah, there was a distinct lack of sleep. Um, Which is and, huge. Uh, that is so, imp- everybody knows the importance of sleep. We talk about it on this show a lot. And the, just the fact that they use sleep deprivation as a form of torture because people know how important sleep is. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was exhausted. I really was. And luckily that afternoon I got a counseling appointment. I got an appointment with a therapist. So that uh, that year, you know, I've been having regular appointments and and it was during that appointment that the the therapist identified that I was I was unstable and she actually contacted a a doctor while I was there I got asked to go and see a doctor in the hospital and in addition to the the thoughts that I was having that day of not feeling right for the first time, I'd also had suicidal ideations. Um, now I'd not considered doing anything as impractically. However, there was thoughts coming in my head that I wasn't in control of. And there's something you put on your tweets that I think is very, um, I can resonate with that. And is it when you put, make sure you take action before the thoughts get pervasive Right. And that was what's happening to me is that there were thoughts in my head that I weren't putting there. But those thoughts had told me how and when I was going to take my own life. Right. And did led me to identify a place and a method. Um but I wouldn't I'd, I'd not taken any practical steps to do so. It's a scary um, place to get to. Yeah, yeah. But I was very open with the doctor, and when he asked me the question, have you thought about harming yourself? And I said, well, no, not practically. And he said, what do you mean, not practically? I said, well, I've not got any plans to do anything. I've not bought any materials, you know, I've, <laughs> I've not no intention of doing it. I've, I've got children that I love very much. I've got a partner I love very much. But there are these thoughts in my head that I don't know how they're getting there but they are there. And he said, Oh, do carry on. Tell me these thoughts. And when I did, he immediately recommended at that point that I spent some time in hospital. It was voluntary. It wasn't forced. Um, so I wasn't section. Right. But when I was admitted to hospital, I had several discussions with doctors about those thoughts over the coming months. And what they described to me was that I was having pre contemplative suicidal thoughts. And what they described was that that was the very early stage of 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 suicide, essentially. And it, and it's in the people who then don't get the help at that stage where the thoughts continue to grow. Right. So it's almost like the, the seed gets planted and the seed grows into a 
into a sapling, then the sapling grows into a tree. Yeah. As soon as that suicidal seed gets planted and it starts to grow, it's really important, I think, for anyone listening to this, that that's when you must get the help. Because I, I only got the help accidentally that day, in a way, because I happened to have an appointment. I'm so glad I had that appointment. Well, and the good news, too, something else that you did that everybody doesn't always do is you were honest with your doctors, right? Because it can be scary, too, right? Like, oh, boy, if I tell them that yeah. I'm thinking suicide, what what happens next? And that could be frightening, and some people aren't completely honest about it. So it, it's really important to reach out for that help and to be honest about what's going on with you. Yeah, it was, yeah. And it, it, and it was an element of curiosity there as well, in a way, which is, might sound rather strange. But I, I, I recognized I was having these images and these thoughts, but I didn't have the plans. And I was like, well, why are they there? And, you know, does that count as suicidal thoughts? Um, so I, I mentioned it to the doctor to, you know, really to be transparent. I, I didn't actually realize until until later when I'd spoken to the doctor in the hospital, what those thoughts, what those thoughts actually meant, I didn't understand them. They understood them more than I did, right. and um, they were able to interpret the thoughts. Um, but they were able to interpret the thoughts into what could have happened if I'd not got help when I did. So, right, right. yeah, anyone so, listen, open up and get help. Absolutely. Was this uh, inpatient that they checked you into? It was, yeah. So yeah. you were there overnight. Yeah, I was there for two weeks. Two weeks. And yeah, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about what that was like for two weeks of inpatient? Were they checking and monitoring meds, changing meds? Were you in groups? Was there learning going on? Yeah. So the first um, for the first few days, it was literally recovery. So the doctor said, you know, we don't want you to do anything for the first few days apart from rest. We are here for you if you need to talk. Um, but it was very much becoming orientated to your surroundings because the, the environment is an unusual one because it's a hospital, yet, and, and hospitals contain people who are ill. Um, but my experience of hospitals and people who are ill was different because people were, you know, behaving in a in a certain way but but here of course with the with being a psychiatric unit the behavior of some people was very challenging right. so there was almost a period of where you needed to adapt because the environment i suppose for someone who's not been there before could be quite scary the staff were amazing and and after the initial period of a few days they then started me on some medication and they monitored the effects of the medication and after that period, they suggested that I went home for a few days on leave and see how I felt at home and report when I went back. So after a few days, I went back and they asked me, how did you find that? Um, at which point I found it, I found it okay. What, what uh, was that like going home for three days and and knowing that you were going to go back? I mean, it just seems like a almost a bit of a surreal, strange situation, and I'm wondering how that felt for you. It was strange, yes. It was hard because Isaac was only about 
five months old then. So, you know, I was, when, when I was admitted to hospital, I was, the first person I thought of was my partner. Because Becky was um, all of a sudden left at home with a newborn. And, right. And she's got a daughter too, you know. And the person who was there for her and her main support had, had not gone. But, you know, I, you know, I, I wasn't there. Um, so to come home, it was kind of, I spent a few days just trying to get back to normal really. But then knowing I was going back again and then not knowing if I, because when I went back to the hospital, I didn't know what they were going to say and whether they were going to let me out again or, you know, so that was hard. But, um, and how about just your communication with, uh, your partner at that point, were you, in a situation where you were apologizing because you had felt bad that you weren't there for her? Were you feeling guilty? Was it a feeling of like health and rejuvenation being able to see the baby and your wife? Apart? Um, it, it was, it was a combination really. It was hard um, being a, apart from them. And when we, when I got back home, I think it was also hard for both of us because neither of us really knew how to be because I needed to slow down and I don't think my partner really knew how to take things because it's a bit of a balance in terms of that I'm not well but at the same time I need encouragement to do things so you know it was it was a hard situation and in hindsight I think what would have been useful would be some kind of home support or a home visit from a practitioner during that time because it actually the the episode did put strain on on the partnership at the time and that wasn't anyone's fault you know it wasn't hers it wasn't mine um she emotionally struggled with the incident for sure one of one of my blog posts is spouses need support as well Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're going through a lot, like dealing with the, the man or the, the partner, spouse, whoever it may be, who is struggling with depression. That partner is, is dealing with a lot, right? Taking care of the family, trying to deal with maybe some very depressive thoughts the, the person is sharing and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, I mean, things had gone from being normal you know we we were on holiday only two weeks before this happened or the week before it happened in the vacation period you know in the summer vacation period it was august and new job and new baby and actually everything should be looking up but then both our worlds i mean our the world we live on together myself and my partner you know came crashing down but at the same time as our individual worlds came crashing down as well. And right. it definitely would have benefited, I think for, for Becky, if she would have uh, had some support off, off someone at the time. Well, I like uh, your idea. Maybe, you know, a, a therapist stops by to do a little family consult while you're at home for those three days. Yeah. And I think if, if they were to speak to you separately, um, you know, not, not to be rude, but right, right. really to speak to you separately different needs yeah and, and and not in the presence of each other yeah and and really go for it in terms of how you're feeling you know right. don't hold anything back because i'm sure there were there would have been things that becky would have wanted to say 
um, that she was finding hard. And equally for me, I was finding things hard because as traumatic incidents do, they, they affected our behaviour around each other. For sure. Um, you know, I, I'd gone from being the, you know, 100 kilometres an hour every day to knowing I had to slow down. And Becky were, of course, not really knowing how to be around me and yeah. she's going to say something that's going to then upset me and cause me to be suicidal again. So she's better off just saying nothing, but then by saying nothing, I'm going to get the wrong idea. And do you know, <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yes. I can completely it, relate. Stressful. You know, it's, it was, it, it was definitely a time that honestly, and I don't mean this to criticize the National Health Service here in the UK because the the care I received while I was in that hospital was absolutely fantastic. But there was a, a void of care when I was discharged. Um right. which would have been it would have been useful even just for a half an hour once a week someone to come out and have fifteen minutes with me, fifteen minutes with Becky and and then maybe as contact us by phone later in the week and say well this is what i recommend to do right so you go back after the three days and do you meet with somebody right away who then gives you a new end date for the inpatient stay uh, so it was usually reviewed about every about every three days um so actually when i went back from leave um i went back to see the doctor and uh, it was the Monday and he, he ran out of time <laughs> and he had to go home. Oh, so, no. so, so, uh, um, I had to wait till the, I had to wait till the Tuesday. Um, and, um, and, and that was fine. But, uh, but then I explained to him, uh, you know, how I found it at home, at which point he advised I stayed there till Friday and he would see me again on the Friday, right. and then if it was if things were okay on the Friday, we'd we'd try to leave home again, which which happened, um, and I had another weekend, and then it was the same time scale again. So I was seen by the doctor the the following Tuesday, and it was at that stage where they discharged me home. Okay. So it seems uh, that sounds like a pretty good deal where they're gradually releasing you back into your home environment, being able to check in with you back in the hospital, try it again, see how you're doing. That uh, I haven't heard of that type of process here in the States, but I, it sounds like it makes a lot of sense. I do agree with you. Some type of check-in while you're doing those three days would probably be incredibly supportive. Um, yeah. But it sounds like a good way to kind of wean you back into reality. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was very much trial and error. The only risk it presented was, of course, when I was on leave, um, it really made the person totally um, in full control of, of of what happens during that time. Right. So, I mean, I was one of the fortunate ones in the sense of that I was allowed to go on leave and... Um, I was okay, but I guess there's a chance that some people could be given the opportunity to go on leave. Um, they might not manage so well right. 
during that time. And if there's no window of support there actively, then I guess, you know, someone might find themselves in a, in a, in quite a vulnerable position. There's a chance of that. Right. Um, but, um, Having said that, even on leave, you were, you were allowed to go back to the hospital any time you liked. Okay. So that was the advice. If you don't feel right, you literally get in your car, drive back, right, and knock on the door, and they'll let you straight back in. And that's any time nice. when you're on leave, day or night. So it gives you that responsibility to do that. Yeah. But um, but I, I don't know as a method how long that's been in place. You know, never been a patient before, but but all in all, what I would say to people is, if you ever need hospital care, then it's fine, it's okay. Don't be afraid of it. Right. And what was uh, when you went home for that final time? What was it like walking out of the hospital? And were you worried, concerned, feeling like now you got no support? Yeah, yeah, because you almost do become slightly institutionalized at the time and i think it's the thoughts that go through your mind are what happens next because i suddenly gone off sick from work i didn't know how that how well that was going to be received and also how well i'd manage my job there's things like when it's a psychiatric illness, what are my friends going to think? What is my family going to think? Right. Um, I've got two older children from my previous uh, marriage. Okay. Um, who, because I've been in a hospital, I'd not seen them for two weeks. What are they going to think? Right. <laughs> what do I say? And yeah, there's, there's a lot of questions go around in your mind. Absolutely. A lot of questions go around in your mind. Um, again, there wasn't any follow up. When I was discharged, either I was re-referred for a service which took about four weeks to actually begin, and in that four-week period, in the middle of that, there wasn't really a uh, a follow-up, and that would have been beneficial. That seems like a long time to wait, but that's part of the deal, right? You guys get free healthcare in the UK, but ends up being wait lists. That's right, yeah. It's um, it's usually, or in some cases, it can be one or the other. You know, the, there's elements of the care that is fantastic, and you know, it's it's unrivaled. I think even in, you know, most parts of the world. However, it really falls short in other areas. So, for example, I was inside a building that was absolutely fantastic and I felt so safe and so well looked after but on the other side of the door as soon as I walked out in the community the community care wasn't in place right so actually you know the a, a blend of the two would be good yeah exactly so then uh, were you fine until then this most recent episode so then I was I was better, yeah. I I uh, went back to work actually in November, so it was only two months. Okay. Um, after being after going out of hospital, I continued in the job that I I, I started in April that year, and um, before I knew it, it was Easter time, and 
you know, I, I passed my probation in the job. I got made permanent. I, I overcame lots and lots of different challenges. And um, we did have some continuing relationship difficulties, Becky and I. And so in the February after the uh, after the hospital admission, I actually moved out of the, of the home. Okay. And but what we have done is we've stayed together, and I live back with my parents. But that was a measure really to uh, to take the pressure off the relationship slightly. So what we've, we found living together wasn't really working for you know for for lots of reasons. So we uh, made a decision to live apart but stay together. Okay. And that was over a year ago now that happened. So, um, I mean, I'm, I'm staying at her house tonight. You know, I, I still come and stay with her um, every week. I'm currently sat at her dining room table um, okay. talking to you. Um, but we don't actually live together. But her relationship has, as a result, has, has grown stronger. Great. And um, in terms of the mental health, then, you know, I was doing okay. But then I ran into the occupational difficulties that i mentioned earlier right and that's what's affecting me mainly now but that should be about resolved yeah um, there's some final decisions to be made i mean i'm more than happy to talk to you again in a in a few months time um and update you um you know further right, um, right. but um at the moment those things that have been troubling me are just about fixed so I'm anticipating that within the next two months, that side of things will be sorted, yeah. and and then and then life goes on. That's awesome. Hey, um, you've also been doing a fair amount of advocacy yourself, right? I do. Yeah. So I can do. you share a bit about your the advocacy that you've been doing? Of course. Uh, yeah. So. The advocacy um, all came about last uh, last year around about October time, and I happened to be listening to a local radio program over here in the UK. So it was called it's called BBC Radio Sheffield, and um, the the radio program on this particular day was all about battles. Um, so there was a phone in and there were people ringing in talking about their personal battles. Now, someone may have had a personal battle that morning. They couldn't get the wheel off the car and change the tire. And there was people who got poorly relatives, people having difficulties at work, um, people um, having financial difficulties. But no one had phoned in and spoken about mental ill health. And so I thought, well, why not? And um, so that's what I did. I, I picked up the phone and they put me on, on air, live, live on air. And there's an audience of approximately 100,000 people. Wow. Um, so it's, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big show, um, potentially a big show. And, um, and I just talked very openly about my experience in a nutshell, as I've spoken with you in detail today. Um, the following day, I was invited to go in to the radio and share that experience live. Only this time, it was over an hour and a half, and it formed the main part of the program. Wow, that's awesome. So that went well, and um, 
it was after the show the presenter just said to me you know have you got twitter and i have um you know at, at john rob mid j-o-n-r-o-b-m-i-d um and um and he said other people will be really helped by what you've got to say so um from that day i took to twitter and and i just do as much as i can and i've i've been doing um some interviews so such as this one with you um i've done interviews for um a couple more uk based uh, organizations um that can all be located through my through my Twitter page, and um, the main message I'm I'm getting out to people Al is that this you know it's okay it's okay not to be okay and it's okay to admit it. Um, don't be don't be don't feel ashamed. This may feel like it's something that you can't get out of, but you can, and life does get better. Things do improve. But the but the root of it is 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 speaking, um, opening up, a message to other people who don't necessarily have mental health disorders would be, you know, please be there to listen to people. You know, listening's just as important as it is for people talking. Absolutely. And um, and but but the main message is to people who are suffering is that it's okay, and bear with it. Yeah. And you can get there. Right. You, you will have ups and downs, but you can get there. Yeah, absolutely. So, and that's a, that's how I like to wrap up actually is by asking my guests and I'll ask you that question now. And I know you just shared some of it, but for those who are listening, who are struggling right now, what bits of advice or suggestions would you give them? My advice for someone now who is, who is struggling is know that it's okay. It's perfectly normal. The feelings you have are normal. It doesn't matter how bad those feelings are. They're normal. But open up and get help. Um, you know, it's don't feel shamed. Uh, don't feel that you're alone. You're not alone. And by opening up and getting help, it's the start of a long road to recovery. But that long road is also filled with very rewarding times and very rewarding moments. But it all starts with opening up and getting help. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if there's any better advice than reaching out for help. I also always like to acknowledge that I know, and I'm sure you know too, John, reaching out for help is not easy and nobody ever said it was, but you need to take that step. That's the first step to take to, to reach out, open up and get that help. Yeah. It's the hardest. Yeah. It's the most positive yeah, step. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And tell us once again, where people can find you on Twitter and I'll make sure to have it in the notes as well. Uh, yeah. So it's, um, it's at John Rob mid that's uh, J O N R O B M I D. Um, and, um, the, the caption is uh, men plus tell equals health. That's my little equation. Um, so men plus tell equals health. So men, if we if we tell people, that can equal us being healthier. Yeah, awesome. John, fantastic uh, speaking with you. Thank you so much for the advocacy work you are doing. Thank you for sharing your story. And, uh, and thank you for taking the time to uh, be on the Depression Files. I really appreciate it. 
Oh, you're very welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, I just want to say, I think it's absolutely fantastic what you do as well, Al. And, and many people can be can be helped by this and the you know the time the effort and the care that you put into this it's uh it's it it really is inspirational so uh um the pleasure's been all mine um thank you for having me on and uh and uh i just hope it helps someone all right well thanks again john make sure you stay healthy i will do thank you thank you for listening to the depression files If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.